Good morning. It was my intention to have those papers to you earlier so that you could read through them and get all that out of the way. I don't intend to read the paper this morning. I perhaps will we'll, uh, refer to it from time to time, but uh, it seems to me that that's something you can take home and read for yourself. And uh, I think we can just hit some high points and then uh, let you get into more of the details at home. Now, it's come to my attention that some of the ladies feel like some of this stuff is over their heads. Uh, it may be that some of you would like to know who this guy named Herman Nudix is. <laughs> I've known the Nudix brothers for several years now, and Herman is the worst of the bunch. He really is. Um, you know, they tell me they can't hear me in the back. They must be getting old. <laughs> I'm going to speak up now. How's that? Okay. I, I've, I've really been enjoying talking to Fred on CompuServe. I'm, I'm, I feel like uh, that, that he's much better at co comedy than he is at eschatology, though. And, uh, <laughs> It's awfully, awfully difficult for me to match wits with Fred. He he's all, always has a quick comeback. Um, with, reference, with reference to this matter of hermeneutics, in, in reality, Bill Sasser should have spoken first, in my opinion, here, because um, he, he is going to tell us what hermeneutics is all about. He's going to tell us the background of it. He's going to give us a few principles of hermeneutics. And of course, it is my contention, contrary to my esteemed brother Fred Zaspel, that uh, this whole discussion is one that is controlled by our hermeneutics. Uh, now, some of us are willing to admit when we stand here that we have presuppositions. There are some people that are blissfully ignorant of their own presuppositions and, and just make their way right through the text as though they had none. And I don't have anyone in particular in mind when I say that. <coughs> but then there are people who just let the text stand as, as it is. So yes, we do. <laughs> Fred and I have had a great time. I can do that. I'm a talented guy. I can do most anything. You're welcome. When I get started, I'll move it back down. <laughs> oh, okay. I delight in the discussion that we have had. Not so much because of the discussion, but because of the spirit in which the discussion has been handled. Someone asked me what camp I was in. And I told them that for years I've been camping out by myself because I didn't know anyone I could trust well enough to camp with them. I was afraid they'd stick a knife between my ribs in the middle of the night, you know. Uh, that's the way people often are. And I just delight that we can have the kind of open and frank and, and sometimes intense discussion that we've had. I don't think people pulled any punches yesterday, and yet they did it in such a spirit of love and and Christian grace that it was just a delight to my soul. Uh, our, our brother 
from the progressive pre-mill. I, I, these, these titles, you know, <laughs> you, you have to do so much protecting, you know, these new positions. You know, it's, uh, it's got all sorts of things to say, I don't really believe what you think I believe, sort of thing. Lloyd said yesterday that we have, uh, we have divisions, as he read that text from 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, we have these divisions so that the pre-mills will be shown to be of the contrary part and so forth. The truth of the matter is, we, we have differences. But brethren, I don't think we have different, uh, divisions. There's a big, big difference. It's high time that we as Christians came to the place that we learned to have differences without having divisions. My good friend Dave, David Morris mows the grass in his tie. Now, I've never seen him do it. But I'm convinced, I'm convinced that he must. Because every time I see David, he has a tie on, and most of the time he has a coat on. You know when I'm going to preach, because I'll have a coat and tie on. Otherwise, no. We have some differences. I said, David, I like to be comfortable. He said, I do too. I am comfortable. <laughs> That's a difference. But listen, there's no division. And we need to cultivate that kind of spirit among ourselves in which we can disagree about important issues and still love each other because we are, are united on the, the most important issue, and that issue is the Lord Jesus Christ and our union and our unity in Him. Well, that's not what I was called here to preach on. My text this morning is going to be in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll read verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I want to say before I read the text that it was not I who limited that text to those verses. As you will notice as you read through much of the rest of the passage, it talks something about Israel and the fact that Israel, as long as the ordinances that God has set in heaven, the moon and the sun and so forth remain, Israel will not cease to be a nation before God. Uh, we, are, we are told in this passage that um, the Lord would indeed restore Israel. And I'm not ignoring those verses. I'm simply giving you the text that I was given to preach on. I am aware that they are there. So don't accuse me of uh, truncating the text that I'm reading this morning for the purpose of avoiding difficulties. Um, I'm going to let Dick, uh, Dave Frampton handle all the difficulties after I'm finished. So <laughs> let's read the text. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, 
For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now if that text doesn't set your heart on fire, there's something wrong with your heart. Boy, what glorious stuff that is. But if that covenant has nothing to do with us, then our hearts may as well just calm down. I'm glad that our brethren who are in some disagreement with what I have determined to say this morning agree, though I think inconsistently, agree that this covenant does in fact have something or other to do with us as Gentile believers. I think it's important and indeed essential if we're going to understand the New Testament Scriptures to understand that this is indeed a text that has something to do with us. It is ours as New Covenant believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, the position that we have been espousing here for some years, the position of New Covenant theology, really falls to the ground if in fact the New Covenant is for Israel and not for us in any sense. And I realize that, again, our brethren have told us that they believe somehow that even though this is promised to Israel and the promises to God made to Israel must be fulfilled literally, somehow this covenant has something to do with us. There are several problems that this passage presents for us. And I'm looking now at page 4 if you want to just follow along. We have not identified all the problems. We have tried to, to identify some of them, and that will no doubt be enough for us to try to handle during this short, short period of time. The first problem that I see is, if the house of Israel and the house of Judah refers exclusively to the nation of Israel, how can we explain the New Testament references to new covenant blessings that are enjoyed by Gentile believers? That seems to me to be a great problem. If they refer to the house of Israel and the house of Judah exclusively, and this is, of course, what classic dispensationalism does. Uh, now, there are some in dispensationalism that, again, are inconsistent with their basic presuppositions. But if that basic presupposition of theirs is held to, then they will have to ad admit and have to insist, in fact, that the house of Israel and the house of Judah here refers exclusively to the nation of Israel. It really can have nothing to do with us if we take these promises literally. Secondly, if on the other hand Israel refers to the church, the elect of all nations, how can we explain the national references in Jeremiah 31? He does in fact talk about the nation of Israel. How can we explain God's promise that Israel would never cease to be a nation before him? Verse 36. Number three. In the light of the phrase, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, how can we refer the passage to Gentile believers since the old covenant was not made with their fathers? That seems to me to be a, a difficult problem. And then finally, what laws are written on the hearts of God's new covenant people? If these are the same law that are written on the laws that are written on the tables of stone, 
How can we contend that the New Covenant believer is not under the binding authority of the Ten Commandments? That's another toughie. Now, I'm aware that a, a fool can uh, raise more questions in five minutes than a wise man can't, can answer in a million years, you know. Um, I'm the fool that asked the questions. I'm not sure if I can answer them in the time we have allotted for us, but let's give it a shot. Now, it seems to me quite important that, um, that as we consider this matter, we, we, we begin to consider it on the basis of presuppositions. What do we presuppose? Now, that doesn't mean that I have some views that I have sucked out of my thumb and have no biblical basis for whatsoever. Um, sometimes we think of presuppositions as, as things that we just imagine. No, I think, I think presuppositions come out of the text, interpreted rightly or wrongly. That's where our presuppositions come from. I think it's wrong for us to, to um, accuse people who differ with us of coming up with presuppositions out of their imagination. I believe there are people that have faithfully tried to deal with the text and have come up with, with presuppositions that are radically different from my presuppositions. We waste our time, I think, when we begin to argue on the basis of conclusions. I don't like your conclusion. Well, I don't, it, conclusions don't matter. What matters is our presuppositions. If we're going to talk about these matters, we need to talk about them presuppositionally. What are your presuppositions? What is it that you come to the text of Scripture with? Like it or not, you have them. We all have them. Whether we got them out of the Scriptures, or whether we dreamed about them, or I don't, I don't know how you got them, but you have them. Take it from me, you have them. It is far better for us to be self-conscious of our presuppositions than it is for us to assume that we simply have no presuppositions. Now, many... Uh, dispensationalists have been helpful to us in giving us their presuppositions. This is what we assume going in. When we approach the text, this is what we assume. Covenant theologians have done the same. We assume these things as we approach the text of Scripture. We assume them perhaps because of our exegetical work in the text, yes. But we assume these things nonetheless. We don't go about proving these things every time we start to approach another text. We don't try to draw all these things out of the text every time we come to it. But we actually come to the text with presuppositions. Let's talk about some of those presuppositions. Now, let me say before I begin to talk about these presuppositions that when I talk about the presuppositions of dispensationalism and covenant theology, I'm not talking about all of the variations that we see today. I am delighted that even with dispensationalist and covenant theologians who have never had the privilege of coming to the Bunyan Conference, even they have begun to come much, much closer together in their understanding. I was amazed as I sat here yesterday afternoon listening to these four positions that were being articulated to hear how much likeness there was in these positions, and that's exciting. Um, it's so easy for us to disagree. I told Fred earlier, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really nervous about this conference because it seems to me we tend to divide over things we know the least about. You know, the things we really understand, we don't have a whole lot of division about those, but those things we really don't know a whole lot about, we tend to divide over those. And this is one of them. 
I think anyone who has been a speaker here and anyone who's going to be a speaker will have to say, I know that my position has some very difficult problems for which I don't have any answers yet. Would you, would you say that, Fred? Well, listen, I, I, I caught you yawning. No. No. They're just, they're just saying, ah. Here's, here's my question, Fred. I, I'd appreciate it if you'd listen to me from now on. Okay. I'm sorry I called you a crass literalist. What was the question I asked, Fred? <laughs> I don't know. Let's go on. You were right. I, was, I was right. It's good to see that these things are coming together, you know. And you know what causes that? I'll tell you what causes it. It's when we get our nose in the book. When we read the same book, you know, and I think, I think we're seeing people who are honestly seeking to grapple with one another's positions rather than firing off these terrible volleys at each other. You know, back during the Gulf War, they had these things called Scud missiles. Remember that? Yeah. And uh, those things, boy, if they hit, they just caused all kind of destruction. Problem was, they weren't very accurate. They, they seldom, if ever, hit the enemy's stronghold, right? Boy, they did a lot of damage. And most of our theological discussion, it seems to me, falls into the area of scud missile attacks. You know? There's, there's Fred over there. I think I see his position. Here comes the scud missile. Whoops, I missed him. His, his arm's bloody, but, uh, you know, I missed him. Let's don't be scud missile firers when in this matter. We have to deal with the problems. Let's talk about the presuppositions of dispensationalism. When I, when I talk about these, I'm not trying to caricature anyone's position, but I'm talking about the, the presuppositions as I was taught them as a dispensationalist. Let me just go, go over them very quickly. I don't want to spend any time with them. But um, on the bottom of page four, the presuppositions of dispensationalism, God has two distinct purposes, one for Israel, the other for the church. Number two, God's primary concern is with Israel. Now, I think in, in most dispensationalism today, that has probably been dropped. But when I was taught classic dispensationalism, I was told that God's primary concern is with Israel. As long as the prophetic clock is running, God is dealing with Israel. But when God stops dealing with Israel, then the prophetic clock stopped. I heard a tape of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones several years ago, and he said, I don't know about the prophetic clock, but my watch stopped last night. Um, that's what he was referring to. God's prophetic clock is Israel. That is what, it, what God is concerned about. Now, what is God doing now? We are in what is called a parenthesis, as far as, as classic dispensationalism is concerned. The church is a parenthesis in God's program. It has interrupted that divinely covenanted program of God with Israel. Thirdly, New Testament revelation is to be interpreted by literal or plain interpretation of Old Testament revelation. Based on this presupposition, dispensationalists impose 
and old covenant understanding of God's promises on the New Testament scriptures. That is the way in which they approach this whole matter. I understand what the Old Testament says in terms of Israel. I'm going to bring that over into my New Testament reading. And when I find the word Israel, then I'm going to give it the same meaning there that it has in the Old Testament scriptures. Now there's a, there's a principle of hermeneutics. And when we talk about hermeneutics, we are talking about the, the science of interpretation. How do, we, how do we approach any kind of literature? How do we interpret? That's the question. There's a rule or a principle of interpretation that says we are to interpret obscure passages in the light of clear passages. If we find a text that seems to be out of kilter with everything else in the scripture and it's really an obscure passage, doesn't, doesn't seem to make any sense to us, how do we interpret that passage? We look at other passages that are written for the purpose of giving us information on that, that doctrine in particular, in doctrinal passages, and we deal with that obscure passage in the light of the clear passage. Now listen, if that works for passages, it seems to me that it works for Old Testament scriptures and New Testament scriptures as well. And the question that I would ask is this, which testament gives us the clearer revelation of God's purposes? It seems to me that that is, that is an extremely, extremely important principle for us to ask or to follow here. Which text of scripture, which, which testament of scripture gives us the clearer revelation? And if we follow that clear principle of hermeneutics, it seems to me that we will have to interpret the Old Testament scriptures in the light of the New Testament scriptures. Remember what the Lord Jesus did after his resurrection as he came near to the two on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. They were disturbed, they were upset, they were downcast because their hopes had been dashed. They had to put their hopes in the past tense. We had hoped. We had hoped. We were expecting him to do something for us in terms of restoring the kingdom. We had hoped. And our Lord Jesus comes to them and says, don't stop hoping what you were hoping for, though it was misguided, has in fact come to pass. So he went back to the Old Testament scriptures and he began to open for them in the light of New Testament revelation what those Old Testament passages were really talking about in the first place. I was afraid I wasn't going to have enough to say this morning and I think I'm going to have too much, but uh, we'll get as far as we can. Luke 24. Verse 25 then he said to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ, that is, was it not necessary for Christ, was it not binding upon him to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later on, verse 43, he took the fish and the honeycomb and he ate it. In verse 44, he said to them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me and he opened their understanding 
that they might understand the Scriptures? Did they have a hope that Israel would be restored to her land and that, that David's son would rise to sit on that throne? Yes, they did. But then the Lord Jesus came and he opened to them the Scriptures so that they might no longer be downcast and discouraged and have their hope in the past. Now they saw that the hope of Israel had indeed come. I know this is supposed to be a lecture. Pardon me. I'm afraid I'm going to be accused of empty rhetoric if I get too excited. So we have to be careful. The fourth presupposition of dispensationalism is the promises that God made to Israel are to be interpreted using the grammatical historical method of interpretation as promises that can be fulfilled literally only in the experience of the nation of Israel. The term Israel is nowhere used in the scripture for any but the physical descendants of Abraham, we are told by the classic dispensationalist. It's interesting to me as I've read books on dispensationalism and seen some of their presuppositions and uh, some of their assumptions that, um, that they like to talk about John Calvin. They like to talk about Martin Luther as being great practitioners of the grammatical historical method of interpretation. These are men who rejected allegory. These are men who believed in literally interpreting the text. And so I, just out of curiosity, went to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16 in which we are told that uh, those who walk according to this rule of the new covenant, as Paul says, peace be upon them, even, in my view, and in the dispensationalist view, upon the Israel of God. Who is Paul talking about when he talks about the blessing coming on the Israel of God? And so I went to Calvin and I went to Luther and guess what? These men who are, a, who are, who are careful practitioners of this method of literal interpretation both tell us that when Paul refers to the Israel of God, he is talking about Abraham's true seed, Abraham's spiritual seed, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. I just found that interesting. Can we be practitioners of the grammatical, historical method of interpretation and still understand that there is a typical correspondence between Israel under the Old Covenant and the church in fulfillment in the New Covenant? And I think the answer is yes. I'll let you read the fine print for yourself, the sixth did I miss anything on the last page there? I think we're on number six, aren't we? God's underlying purpose in the world is the manifestation of His own glory. Ostensibly, dispensationalism breaks ranks with covenant theology at this point by saying that covenant theology is, is insistent that God's purpose is the salvation of His people. The reality is this, this really is a straw dummy. Then the seventh presupposition is dispensationalism emphasizes the discontinuity between Israel and the church. These two are separate entities, never the twain shall meet. 
Let's hurry on to covenant theology. What are the presuppositions of covenant theology? First of all, God has only one purpose and one elect people. There is a continuity between Israel under the Old Covenant and the church under the New Covenant that virtually equates Israel with the visible church. Thus, covenant theologians view the visible church as a body that by design is composed of believers and unbelievers. Do we believe that the visible church is composed, if we are Baptists, do we believe that the visible church is composed of believers and unbelievers? Well, you see, we even have differences on that point. Do we believe that it is, well, yes. Yes, we do. But do we believe that by design or do we believe that by default? And the answer is we believe that by default. We know that there are going to be some hypocrites that slip in among us. There are going to be some tares among the wheat. But we don't look at the tares and say, come on in just because you happen to be an infant. We don't make them part of the covenant community. No, we believe that it is only believers that make up this visible church. That is, in terms of their profession. Not so with covenant theology. Covenant theology makes them members of the covenant community by virtue of their parents' faith and their baptism. Why can they do that? Because there is that, that equality between the church and Israel. Now, I'm not trying to caricature that position. I understand that, that real covenant theology understands that it is indeed the spiritual seed, the elect of God, who really make up the church. Yes, I understand that. But boy, that's very, very dangerous to bring people in and say, look, you, you, are, the, you are part of the covenant community until you prove otherwise. And in, in their confessions, that's really what they say. Now, let's be careful if we take the amillennial or covenant position that we don't involve ourselves in sloppy exegesis of the text. There are people that like to go to the book of Acts and chapter 7 and say to us, see there, the church was in the Old Testament. That's what Stephen said. The church in the wilderness. Well, I got news for you. By that method of exegesis, you can say that the town meeting in which a riot broke out in Ephesus was also the church. Let me read the text for you. Here it is, Acts 19, verse 32. The assembly, the church, the ecclesia, was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Now, we have to grant that this sounds a great deal like a typical business meeting in a Baptist church. But in reality, it only describes a town meeting that erupted in response to Paul's preaching. So if we can say the church was in the wilderness, then we can say the church was in that town meeting in Ephesus where these ungodly people were rioting against Paul and his gospel. Same exegesis. You have to be careful about that. We can't do that. Let's go. Verse uh, number, number three. Israel was a nation of God's people. Is that true? Yes, it is. Is that true of them in the same sense that it is now true of us? See, the question is not, was Israel a nation of God's people? Yes, they were. The question is not, was Israel redeemed? Yes, they were. 
The question is not, did the glory and the adoption and the covenants and all of that apply to them? Did it continue to apply to them even in Paul's day until their, their nation was finally done away with in 70 AD? Yes, it did. But did any of those things apply to them as they now apply to us, the new covenant people of God? And the answer is no. How were they redeemed? In what sense were they redeemed as a nation? And the answer is they were redeemed out of Egypt by God's almighty hand. There was blood that was shed, God parted the sea, and they went through dry shod. And that is a foreshadowing of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. As Bill and I were talking last night, when they got on the other side of the Red Sea and they saw that bunch of Egyptians out there floundering around and drowning, they got happy. They had a party. They sang the, the song of Moses. The Lord has redeemed us. Let me tell you something, folks. We can sing and will sing indeed and have been singing the song of Moses. Not because we have been brought through the Red Sea by the power of God's almighty hand, but because we have been delivered from the jaws of death itself by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It's fulfilled. That was the mere shadow. They were redeemed, yes, but oh, we are redeemed in a far, far higher sense. They had promises. Were they real promises of real blessings? Yes, they were. What a glorious thing it was to be part of Israel's camp, Israel's nation. God is our covenant God. C.K. Barrett says, those could be called blessings only in a crude sense in comparison to the blessings that we now enjoy in Jesus Christ. There's no comparison in reality between their blessings and our blessings. They had the shadow. We have the fulfillment. Ah, when the Lord Jesus stood up in the synagogue and took the scroll and opened it to Isaiah 61 and began to read that glorious text, he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What was he talking about? He was talking about that great day or that great year of jubilee. The year of jubilee has come, he says. It's fulfilled. We live in it. Oh, there's, time of, there's a time of, of, of redemption. The year of Jubilee, you recall, began on the great day of atonement. <laughs> I wonder why. That's when our Jubilee began, brethren. You see, it seems to me that one of the problems we have with this whole matter is that so many of us are looking for it. When's it going to come? I don't know when it's going to come. I'm not looking for it. I'm looking for Him. That's what it's all about. And if we leave Him out of our discussion, everything we've been doing is worthless. Because He is in fact the center of our theology. He is in His redemptive work the grand Lord of His redeemed people. It is His glory that we're talking about here. It's been widely rumored that I'm a nonmillennialist. I don't know whether I am or not. When He comes back, He can do what He wants to. If He wants to have a great time of revival, 
before he comes back, I'm for it. I, I delighted in what our brother said yesterday, yesterday afternoon in terms of the post-millennial position. What a delightful hope that is. I, I don't know if I can go with that, but uh, boy, what a wonderful thing. Acts, uh, Acts chapter 3 talks about that time of rest, refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Uh, would it not be a glorious thing if we could in these dark days see God so pour out of His Spirit on us that, that there would be that time of refreshing such as we've never seen. When people would stop fighting against the God of grace and bow the knee to Him who is altogether lovely and worthy. Glorious, de glorious indeed. If He wants to do that, that's fine with me. If we have to go through a time of a thousand years when there are still rebels on earth living in a land and they get, it, get all upset at the end of it and, and, and foment a rebellion against the Lord of heaven and, and, God, and he has to put them down before the, the, the eternal reign begins, that's fine with me. I don't care. If he does it, that's fine. That's not the issue. Unless he's, is he coming before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation? I don't care. All I care is he's coming. He's coming. It is Him that we are looking for. And the reason we are looking for Him the second time is because He has come the first time. If He hasn't come the first time, I don't want to see Him the second time. What we are concerned about, you see, I know this is a lecture. What we are concerned about and the focus of our theology is not on the application of what Jesus Christ has done. That's important. It has to happen. But dear ones, that is not the focus of what we're talking about here. What our focus is, is on the accomplishment of His great work. It is not the King or the Lord who comes out of heaven that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. It is the one who comes out of Sion and turns away iniquity from Jacob. I think he did that when he came the first time. He has accomplished the work. It is fulfilled. And now all that remains is for him to apply it to his people. When will he do that? He's already done it to some. He's going to do it to others. And even those to whom his work has already been applied are going to experience in fuller measure what he has already done. But remember this. The already not yet doesn't mean he can do it already in one sense and not yet, or in the future, do it in, in another sense. When we talk about already not yet, we mean he has begun something that is continuous and is of the same character and nature with which he has already done with what he has already done. I think that's a very important principle. When we are told that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. That doesn't simply mean that his resurrection guarantees that we are going to be resurrected. What that means is the resurrection has already begun in our head and representative and we are part of that resurrection. We're, it's intricately related, you see. It's all in him. Let me, let me at least read through these uh, presuppositions. I want to get this out of the way. Four, God deals with members of the race, of the human race, under one of two covenants. This, by the way, we're still on 
if you got lost in all that. We're still on the, <laughs> we're still on the presuppositions of covenant theology. We haven't gotten to the truth yet. We're still uh, Number four, God deals with the members of the human race under one of two covenants, the covenant of works in Adam or the covenant of grace in Christ. The old Mosaic covenant and the new covenant are merely different administrations of one overarching covenant. We've talked about that extensively in years past. Number five, the conditions for blessing under the old covenant are not different in character from the conditions for blessing under the new covenant. You see this both in O. Palmer Robertson, The Christ of the Covenants, and in Murray's Principles of Conduct and, and other places. What they're saying is, yes, there were conditions in the Old Covenant. God says, if you will, then I will. But those conditions are really no different than the conditions we find in Hebrews chapter 4 and other places. You are Christ's house if you continue. And I, I suggest to you, in fact, I contend this morning that there is a vast difference between those conditions. The covenant that I am now under in Christ does not depend on my obedience. The covenant that I am now under in Christ depends on His obedience. And I stand in Him. That's what they were singing about last night. I stand in Him. The Lord doesn't look at me and say, Randy Savior, you're a scoundrel. That's right. I am. But thank God I don't stand before God that way. I stand in Him. Zinzendorf said, Jesus, Thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed. With joy shall I lift up my head. Do you know anything about joy, by the way? I was glad to see a bunch of old dead Calvinists getting excited last night. Wasn't that good? <laughs> we can be some of the most Dead, dry people sometimes. And we've been taught to do that. Somehow we've gotten the idea that if we get excited, we're, we're going to excess. No, we're just praising our Lord. He's our hero. He deserves our praise and our worship. Boy, we need to get stirred up about him. I go to a ball game, I get stirred up. You do too. Well, I'll tell you what, he... He's done far more than any ball player you've ever seen. He hit a home run. <laughs> it was a grand slam. <laughs> grand slam. And he's batting, he's batting a thousand. I can get excited about that. Here's the, here's the condition. The condition isn't you're in him and if you continue then you'll stay in him. No, what, what the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is saying is, you belong to him, you are in him, if this is true of you, if you continue. If you're not a continuer, then obviously you're not in him because those who are in him continue. See, that's the issue. And I think covenant theology, at least in these sources, messes that up. Number six, and we're going to have a break. Did I get started late? I got started late, didn't I? How, how late did I get started? 20 past 9? 15 past? Do I get 15 more minutes? If you need to go to the bathroom, go ahead. I'll be finished in a minute. Number six. The promises made to natural Israel have either been literally fulfilled already or are being spiritually fulfilled in the new covenant church. That is a presupposition of covenant theology, generally. 
I'm going to read through, since we have a little extra time, the presuppositions of New Covenant theology. Probably will not be difficult for you to ascertain, even if you've never heard me before, that that would be the position that I am actually coming here to preach this morning. Um, and these are presuppositions that I think need to be tested. And if they are not found to be scriptural, we need to discard them. I did not come here to defend a position. Um, I have been dodging having a position for years and years and years. So much easier to do what John does than just say, I don't know. That way people can feel good about not shooting at you. You know, so I've been, I've been, John is my patron saint, and I just follow John, and I do what he does, and it seems to have worked for him all these years, so I'm going to keep trying to. Here's what we presuppose. God has only one purpose. Does God have one covenant of grace? No. Oh, you say, well, God has all sorts of plans and programs and purpose. No, 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 he doesn't. He has a program, he has a purpose, he has a people, and they all run right through. Right through. There is that continuity of purpose. That purpose is the revelation of his glory, and I need to add here, in Christ. That is the key. Dave Frampton told me last night what to preach, and so if, if you don't like what I'm saying, you talk to Dave because he's the one that told me to say this stuff. <laughs> that purpose is the revelation of his glory in Christ as he establishes his sovereign rule over his entire redeemed creation. Number two, the establishment of Israel as a nation was only a means that God used pursuant to his eternal purpose. God has only one people. The spiritual inheritance is granted only to those in Christ. Three, Christ and those united to him by faith are the true seed of Abraham to whom the promise was made. That's extremely, extremely important. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Some of these Corinthians had been talking about the Apostle Paul. They had been making accusations against him. They've been saying, you can't trust this clown. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He said he was coming, and he hadn't come yet. See, that's what kind of guy Paul is. And what they were really saying is not just, that's what kind of Paul, guy Paul is. They were saying, not only can, can you not trust him, you can't trust the gospel he preaches. That kind of guy's not going to preach the truth to you. Don't listen to Paul. Paul later goes on to defend himself, but first of all, he says, even if I am a charlatan, even if I do speak out of both sides of my mouth, even if I did promise to come and through providence was, was not able to come, even if that's true, that doesn't mean God's promise isn't true. God's promise stands. He says in verse 18, but as God is true, our word, our message, our, our promise toward you was not yea and nay. We weren't talking about, about of both sides of our mouth. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, wasn't wishy-washy, but in him, in Christ, was yea. 
for all the promises of God. Literally, however many promises of God there may be. Wow. Hear that. However many promises of God there may be are in Him, yea, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God by us. Wow, what a text. What a text. That's what it's all about. It's in Him, in Him. Christ and those united to Him by faith are the true seed of Abraham to whom the promise was made. In reading the promise made to Abraham, it, it would be difficult for us thinking literally, to look at that promise and say, oh yeah, he's talking about Christ. You know how I know that? That is how I know he's talking about Christ? Because God, through Paul, under inspiration, told me that that's who he was talking about. When he says to thy seed, he's, he's not talking as to many. He's not saying, I'm going to fulfill this promise to the nation. He says, I'm going to fulfill this promise to Israel. Wait a second, what did you say? I said, I'm not going to fulfill this promise to the nation. God says, I'm going to fulfill this promise to Israel. Who is Israel? Who is Israel? I say, it's us. Well, let's wait a minute. Who is it first? What did the law demand? It demanded an Israelite who could keep the law completely, continually, perfectly, inwardly. And there wasn't one for centuries. It demanded a king who had the right to sit on David's throne. And after that promise was given, there was a series of kings, one after another, and the people said, nope, couldn't be him, nope, couldn't be him, nope, couldn't be him, couldn't be him, couldn't be him. Got to be a better one coming. Got to be a better one coming. And they looked at the priest, and they saw those priests as they offered those endless sacrifices over and over and over again. And not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. And they said, there's got to be a better priest. There's got to be a better sacrifice. There's got to be a better sanctuary. There's got to be a better altar. And the Word of God says, He's come. The things that will come have come. He has fulfilled them. It's all in Christ. I know we can agree on that. We can't agree on anything else. That's where it is. We've already talked about the principle that old, the old must, uh, the new must interpret the old. Number four, number five. New Testament writers understood the relationship between Israel and the church as that of type and promise to antitype and fulfillment. We don't, we don't need to say that God took those physical, material promises made to Israel and spiritualized those promises to the church. No, what we say is. God fulfilled those promises to Israel. God fulfilled them. Now, that doesn't mean they can't be fulfilled again and again and again. But let me tell you something. When God fulfills something, it always gets better. It moves from down here to up here. It moves from type 
to the antitype or the fulfillment. It never goes from the type to the fulfillment back to the type. We won't take the time to elaborate on that, but although I think it's an extremely important principle. Number six, the fulfillment of God's promises does not exhaust them. We just spoke to that. Don't go to, don't go to Joshua and say, see there? No. No. Yes, it was, was it fulfilled? Did God do everything he said he was going to do? Yes, he did. Is God finished? No, he's not. Can he fulfill those promises again to natural Israel? Yes, he could and did. Could he make those same promises again to them and fulfill them again? Could he, because of their sin and their ungodliness, cast them out of their land, have them taken into captivity, using pagans as an instrument of his own sovereign judgment? Yes, he could. Can he then bring them back into the text? He did. Does that mean there's no further fulfillment, no future fulfillment? No, it doesn't. We're living in the future fulfillment of that. The book of Hebrews tells us that Moses could not lead the people into rest. And then Joshua came along and he led them into the land. There it is, there in the land. Fulfilled. And the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says, that's great, but you know what? That Joshua is not good enough. I got a better, better Joshua. Our Joshua can do what their Joshua couldn't do. Their Joshua could lead them into the land and they could walk there and dwell in safety. But our Joshua gives us the rest of which that rest was a mere type and feeble symbol. We have entered into the land in Jesus Christ. We don't mean when we talk about Israel and the church that when the church comes along, the church replaces Israel in the sense that the nation of Israel ceases to exist. I mean, you know, you got that passage that says um, the Jews and the Gentiles and the church. Our brother told us yesterday he doesn't use that passage anymore, and, and that's, that's good. Because that passage really proves nothing. Of course there were Jews alongside the church. The church continued to meet in their synagogues with them. Of course they were there. Does that mean they are still the people of God? No. No. Does God love them as an ethnic people? I think he does. I think the text is clear in Romans chapter 11. Are they the true seed of Abraham to whom the promises were made? No. No. There's so much here that I can't talk about because we just don't have the time. I just want to just finish with these presuppositions for now. Number seven, there may be a future restoration of ethnic Israelites to God's favor through faith in Christ, but not a retrogression to Judaism. And I think our, even our brethren who are dispensationalists here would agree, at least um, in, terms of, in terms of the temple and sacrifices and so forth. Now, my problem with that position is this. It seems to me that if we're going to insist that we take those promises made to Israel literally as, as promises to the nation, then we are bound to take all of the other things that are said that, will, that, that, that are supposed to happen in this millennium literally. Do you get the point? 
I don't want to have to belabor that, but it seems to me that you can't take part. I mean, I know Fred's comfortable with this, but I'm trying to make Fred uncomfortable. I don't like Fred to be comfortable. <laughs> He's not even smiling, brother. <laughs> what a wit what a wit oh Fred and then although somewhat somewhat um, extraneous to this whole matter is, is the, in, terms of, in terms of millennialism um, or prophecy is there can be continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant without rendering the Old Testament Scriptures irrelevant for the New Covenant believer. Don't throw away your Old Testament. <laughs> we believe the Old Covenant has been done away with lock, stock, and barrel. But I have a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures that tells me about my Savior. And I want to read it to find out about Him. He's there. He opened to them the scriptures and showed them in the scriptures, all parts of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. When you read the scripture, look for him. Well, I'm finished for now. We'll come back, Lord willing, and do it again. <laughs>